Um, Stephen Hawking, um, I figured this would be timely because, uh, as you all probably know, he died about a month ago. Uh, Mike, can you see that? Yeah. Okay. On March uh, 14th, he was 76 years old, and he was something of a medical miracle uh, because I think he was supposed to die in his 20s, and, and yet he just continued somehow to live. And um, that's the book that I got. The most recent ones don't have that image on them, but that's the, that's the book that I read. I think I remember reading that um, about 1996 and just reading it again and again and uh, highlighting it, and it became just one of my favorite books at that point in my life. I haven't read it in a while, um, but I did write a paper on it when I was in seminary, and so this presentation is based on that paper. And uh, before we give a a theological reading of a brief history of time, I want to just give a brief history of Ben Milner. And uh, in the summer of 1991, I was uh, an atheist physics major at Wake, as Scott said, although he didn't mention the atheist part. And, uh, and I did not expect to be a pastor when I was an atheist physics major. Um, I, not only did I not expect to be a pastor, I didn't really like pastors. I didn't really like Christians. The two groups of people I disliked the most were Republicans and then Christians in that order. <laughs> and regarding faith, I thought there's, they're very separate things. There's science and there's faith. And the one is based on uh, objective facts that are publicly known, can be demonstrated to anyone. And then the other one is privately held. And faith is okay, uh, but it's for people who are kind of weak-minded and uh, who um, need a crutch, intellectually need a crutch. So I didn't really respect um, faith very much. I thought basically that with my uh, physics major, uh, knowing what I knew, that God was unnecessary, that basically everything could be explained without him. So he was redundant. And that uh, as uh, the famous mathematician and scientist Laplace said to Napoleon, uh, when Napoleon asked him about God, um, Laplace said, sir, I have no need of that hypothesis. Because Laplace was basically saying, I I can explain everything through science and math. And so based on, um, you might have heard of Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation is most likely the true explanation. It seemed like, you know, maybe there was a God, but it was a simpler thing just to say that um, there was none and everything could be explained through science. And probably at that point in my life, I was a little bit naive as to how much science could really explain. So um, I thought of faith as, uh, as simply a value and science as facts. But what I didn't realize then, and I, I realize now, is that um, it wasn't so much science I was believing in. I mean, I still believe in science equally, of course, now as, a, as someone with faith. But um, what, what I was really believing was this worldview, which is called naturalism. And so it was actually a, it was simply another kind of faith. It was, you have, it's something that is, um, that is beyond mere empirical claims, in other words. And um, this is what the Oxford English Dictionary says about naturalism. Thanks, Scott. It's uh, the belief that only natural as opposed to supernatural or spiritual laws and forces operate in the world. Now, that could be also defined as, I mean, atheism is one brand of naturalism, but it's not identical to atheism. 
And uh, as I said earlier, that's a valid philosophical position to hold, naturalism. But you've got to realize that in holding that, um, it is based on, it's a very large claim about reality. And it's based on non-empirical claims. Just the same way that theism is, um, but it's kind of uh, anti-theism. So for instance, for a naturalist, um, human rights are very hard to explain. I won't go into that right now, but, it, but it's very hard for a naturalist to actually um, say that uh, all human beings um, are created equal and have certain rights. So it takes some faith for a naturalist to arrive at that claim. I'm not saying they can't believe in it, but it's, it takes a leap of faith, if you will, for a naturalist to believe in that. And then about science, uh, uniformitarianism, which is that there is an invariance of natural laws throughout time and space. In other words, that at the very beginning of time, and the most distant galaxy right now, um, that the same laws apply. Uh, we don't know that. Of course we don't know that. We're, we're so limited to where we are. We have to assume that. And so we assume that everywhere um, that we can see uh, that the same laws are operating. And we don't really realize we operate on that principle. But again, not provable. It's not a fact itself. And then another... Um, article of faith, if you will, of naturalism is what uh, Hawking calls the no-boundary principle. And that is really uh, what I want to talk about. Because I would say uh, that a brief history of time uh, is basically his defense of the no-boundary principle. So before I, um, before I get to that, let me... Um, let me just talk about a brief history of time real quickly. Uh, it, is, it was written in 88. It has sold 10 million copies, which is astonishing for uh, a book about uh, cosmology. I bet almost no book on cosmology has ever sold anything close to that. It's kind of a mystery as to why it did so well. Um, it's a catchy title. Hawking was an interesting story. It was fairly easy to read, but again, it's a bit of a mystery why it just exploded in popularity. Um, and it was translated into 35 languages. So this is an incredible phenomenon, this book. Uh, I assume that all of you have probably at least heard of the book. And uh, the main subject is cosmology, which is the study uh, of things at the largest level. The universe, uh, its origins, and its conclusion, whether everything is going to eventually just fly apart and... Uh, end in kind of uh, just, you know, no heat, uh, everything, it's like uh, zero temperature, or everything's going to collapse again, the big crunch. But um, in particular with Hawking, he's interested in the beginning. That's really what his focus is, is how, um, how did things begin. And on Hawking.com, which you can go to, um, still, they still keep that thing up and running even after his death. He explains why he wrote it here. Very simple explanation. To help non-scientists understand fundamental questions of physics and our existence. In particular, where did the universe come from and how and why did it begin? So that's the basis of the book. And the no boundary principle is his explanation as to how and why the universe began. So, um, let me first uh, give a really brief history lesson. This is how he begins the book. The first few chapters are a really brief history lesson of cosmology. So 
this is kind of based on Aristotle. Uh, he wasn't really so much of a scientist. He was a Greek philosopher, but he thought of himself as a scientist. We wouldn't have called him that today. But based on that, uh, Isaac Newton, who was probably the greatest physicist at his time and up to that point in history, in 1687 in the Principia Mathematica, he said that, that the universe is uh, infinitely large and static, infinitely old and the same as it ever was. It's never changed. It's, it's not expanding. It's not contracting. And it just seemed obvious to most scientists up till basically the turn of the century, last century, 1900, that that was the way it was. So if you just kind of put in your mind um, this picture, I don't know, he, he thought it was a sphere or a cube, and there was, well, I guess it wouldn't even have boundaries, it was infinite, but just, it was static, nothing was moving. He knew, obviously, the Earth was not the center of it. I don't know if he thought the sun was the center of it, but that's what he posited. Uh, the, it's called the steady state model. And it was, it's, it's hard to believe, but even in 1929, that's what most scientists and cosmologists believed, the steady state model. So it's kind of hard for us to put our heads and our minds back in 1929, but this idea that Edwin Hubble discovered is abs was absolutely amazing. It, it rocked the scientific world in a way that was similar to the way that uh, Einstein's theory of general rel relativity did um, this idea of the, this thing he discovered, the red shift. So let me try to explain the red shift. Um, and I'll use an analogy of, of a car. So what he, what he discovered, um, just by looking through his telescope, uh, which I believe was in near LA, in California, he discovered that light coming from galaxies that were far away, and I think the farther away the more red shifted, but he discovered that light coming from the galaxies uh, was lower in frequency. So if you know about the, you know, the, the, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, things shifted to the red, like infrared or low frequency, and the things shifted to the purple, like ultraviolet light, are high frequency. So he was kind of surprised to discover that when he looked at the most distant galaxies, they were all shifted towards the red, and the farther away they were, the more red shifted. And what he, what he uh, then proposed based on that observation was that they're moving away from us. Now, that, that, again, that kind of rocked the scientific world. Let me try to explain that really briefly. If you don't um, know so much about uh, why that would be, let me try to explain that. So if a car is coming towards you, Think about the sound that it makes as it's coming towards you. It's that it's an increasingly high frequency. It's like when it passes. So as it's coming to you, the frequency is increasing. And then right when it passes, it goes low frequency. So the frequency is increasing as it comes, and then the frequency begins to decrease as the car passes you. So how would that? How does that apply to the galaxies? Well, if the galaxies are moving towards us, they would be shifted. Uh, towards the purple, be high frequency instead of sound, light. Now when they go away from us, the car with sound, the galaxy with light, that means their frequency is, is down, so that's red. So I think it was probably hard for Hubble to believe, it was hard for the scientific community to believe when he published his paper, but that was his proposal, that, uh, that, that somehow, I mean obviously it blew up the steady state model, 
And it was even, it was kind of weird to think of how, so does, does that mean our Milky Way galaxy is at the center of things? So if that's kind of a galaxy, here's our Milky Way galaxy. So Hubble is noticing that, uh, that all these galaxies are moving away from us. And the farther away, the faster. So I guess you could assume that that means that we are the center and they're all moving from us that is the static center. But what's another way that you could explain that that would not be as uh, anthropocentric? Think about it. Um, think about if you were a dot on a balloon that was growing. You know, if you draw dots on a balloon that's growing. Then if you're that dot on the balloon that's growing, um, as it expands, if you're one of those dots, all of the different dots around you are going to start moving away from you. But if you look at, if you stand on those dots, they're also going to see all the dots moving away from them. So what was proposed after Hubble uh, was called the Big Bang Theory uh, of the expanding universe, which is kind of like the universe is like a balloon that it's, it's not, the, the galaxies are not moving away from us so much in an empty space that's a static space, but that the whole thing is like expanding all at once. The universe is blowing up like a balloon. Now, the, um, the Big Bang Theory was actually proposed by a Belgian monk, Georges Lemaitre, and uh, he um, called it the cosmic egg, which is probably not as good an idea. I, I, I don't like cosmic egg as much as I, I do Big Bang. Um, he, he described it as a primeval atom. And um, a, a great British cosmologist named Fred Hoyle, he made fun of it because it was such a crazy idea to him because he was a, a starch defender of the steady state model. So Fred Hoyle mocked the idea and he's like, this crazy Belgian monk is proposing this idea that was like some kind of big bang. But now all of us know this theory, uh, we're taught it somewhere along the line, the Big Bang Theory. It's a television show. And what that means is that at the very beginning, if all the galaxies are moving away from each other, then at one point, they must have all been together. I mean, it's, it logically follows, but again, it's very hard to kind of get your mind around. I guess it's just hard to believe that idea that at one point, the universe was the size of an atom. That 13.772 billion years ago, give or take 59 million years, uh, the universe was this infinitely dense spot that I guess he would call the cosmic egg or the primeval atom or, and this is a, this is a term that applies to more than just the beginning of the universe, but the term that is now used is a singularity. And basically, the, the no boundary principle, I know I haven't come back to that, but remember, that's, the, that's what the book is about, the no boundary principle. And the, the no boundary principle is kind of the attempt to eliminate the idea of a singularity. So this is what we're going to talk about pretty much the rest of the time, this idea of a singularity and how the no boundary principle is Hawking's attempt to eliminate the singularity at the beginning of the universe, because he does not like that idea of a singularity at the beginning of the universe. So I, I'm gonna, this is a really quick, um, this is gonna eventually get to the singularity, but we've gotta go to relativity, the theory of relativity, both 
special and general. And uh, <clears throat> Albert Einstein, in 1905, um, proposed the special theory of relativity, that as something moves faster, the length of that thing contracts and time dilates or expands. So there was some movie, uh, Inception maybe? Interstellar. Interstellar. Interstellar, and the, they're going so fast that I believe their time slows down and everybody else is aged. Remember that. That's based on Einstein's theory of special relativity. It, it's actually been proven to be true through, through studies. So the idea is that space and time are connected. I think before that, scientists would have thought they're just two different things, but now he's fusing them together. And so even our measure of, of distance, a light year, the very name light year shows us that, that these two things are linked, uh, time and space, because that's a measure of distance. The amount of time it takes for light to travel in one year. So then you get this idea of space-time as kind of a fabric, as one thing. And that leads to general relativity 10 years later, which of the two is probably the more important theory, although it's the less uh, frequently understood or talked about. And this is a quote that I got uh, from the internet. It is a geometric theory of gravitation, uh, the most beautiful of all existing physical theories. I think that was Wikipedia that said that. And I'm sure it was quoting someone. I couldn't find that person, but the most beautiful of all existing physical theories. Um, I think that its simplicity is partly why. It's also very spatial, so you can, you can imagine it. But if you think about space-time as a kind of a fabric, then in general relativity, gravity is a disruption in space-time. So this is a new way of explaining gravity, um, which scientists knew about, of course, but had never been able to fully explain. So this is the way that Einstein explains what gravity is. He says that, um, of course, we know about gravity that, that Mass attracts mass. And that's why uh, the sun exerts gravity on the earth and we spin around the sun because of the, the force of gravity. That's why the moon spins around the earth. Gravity is the way that mass attracts mass. And just inherently, we've always known that to be true, that two masses attract each other. Um, what Einstein said that was unique was that mass actually curves space-time. So it, it kind of warps space-time. Wherever you put a mass, space-time in that area gets curved. And so things around in that curvature begin to operate differently. So let me give an example of a bowling ball on a mattress. I tried to draw this earlier. Let's see if this works. Okay, so this is a mattress. And of course it's flat. This is space-time in the analogy. And then let's put a bowling ball on the mattress. So obviously what's going to happen to the mattress is that around the bowling ball, things will curve like that. And so if you, uh, if you rolled a marble around, it would become, um, its motion would be changed by the curvature created by the bowling ball. And that's literally what's happening in our, in our solar system. The sun is curving space-time so much that the planets are like traveling around that sunken area, that warped space-time. 
And gravity measures how much curvature uh, has been affected by the mass. So the bigger the mass, the more it curves. And um, if you really get a, uh, a thing, maybe it's, maybe it's easier to, to imagine it uh, as the uh, spiral wishing well. I'm sure you've all put money in a spiral wishing well. It is the most profitable fundraising device of all time, the spiral wishing well. So um, it's one of those funnels like that, and you put your coin in here, and uh, the coin, as soon as you put it in the spiral, begins to move around, and then it goes down and down and down and down and down. And in a way, that funnel is a great picture of, of curvature of space-time and why things orbit uh, in a curved space. Now, the problem with that um, picture is that because of friction, the coin is going to go farther and farther down. But if it was frictionless, and we can almost create a semi-frictionless thing, uh, if it was frictionless and it was a marble, it would pretty much continue to stay at the same place. And that's what the Earth is doing in terms of the, the solar system. So that's special relativity. And I am going to get to the singularity here. Here's, here's where singularity comes in. Um, if, the, if the mass is small enough and heavy enough, then what's going to happen to that mattress is it's going to actually tear. And I asked Scott about this, and he wasn't sure, but I figure if you put a 300-pound marble on a mattress, it's going to tear the mattress. Scott, you, what do you think? You're still not sure. I, I, if, you, if a 300-pound person stands right in the middle of a mattress, it might tear as well. But if it's a 300-pound uh, marble, then I think it's just going to break. The mattress is just going to break. It's just going to fall. Because the curvature will become so great. So whether it does or not, maybe it should be 1,000 pounds. But the point is, if something gets small enough and heavy enough, Space-time is going to curve like crazy, and you're going to get a, a, a black hole. And that's what a black hole is. It's, um, it's so curved that it's torn. Space-time tears. Light can't get out. And so uh, the, it happens when a star collapses, when it's died. And uh, it gets so dense and small that light can't escape. And galaxies actually are um, suns swirling around some kind of supermassive black hole. That's at the center of, of, uh, of a galaxy. And the more suns fall into the black hole, uh, the more stars, then the more massive the black hole becomes and begins to swirl, things begin to swirl more. So that's the singularity. And if you think about it as a balloon, it's like a balloon where there's no tie at the bottom. It's just open. Okay, so it's, a, it's an open balloon. Now, now Stephen Hawking is, is disturbed by that idea, not not regarding a black hole as much as he is, that the, that the universe would have a, um, an opening in it. He doesn't like that idea. So he, pr he proposes the, uh, the no boundary principle, which, uh, which essentially is tying the balloon at the bottom so that um, there is no singularity at the beginning of the universe. There's, that's why it's called no boundary. There's no boundary. All that is is within the balloon. There's nothing outside the balloon. All reality is inside the balloon. And these are two quotes from him. Uh, 
The first one is from A Brief History of Time, 1988. The second one is from this book called The Grand Design, 2010, where uh, he proposes this idea of spontaneous creation. But let me read them in order. So this is Hawking. Uh, so long as the universe had a beginning, one could suppose it had a creator. But if the universe is completely self-contained, having no boundary or edge, it would have neither beginning nor end. It simply would be. What place then for a creator? It's surprising how much he talks about the creator in this book. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily think in a science book uh, you would bring up the idea of God. But he brings it up several times. And, um, and that's why I wrote the paper on it, because I was just intrigued by the fact that he kept bringing up the creator. Whenever he brings up the creator, he denies it. But why is he so interested in it? And then, based on that idea, he eventually came to this view that uh, because there is such a law as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist, it is not necessary to invoke God. So um, that is what follows from the no boundary principle. Now, the, the obvious question is, so why? Why is there not a singularity? Why is there no boundary? Why is the balloon tied? Um, and the reasons he gives, at least in the book, and he might have made more sophisticated arguments since that time, but in the book, this is what he says. Two arguments, essentially. Um, at the singularity, general relativity and all other physical laws would break down, and one could not predict what would come out of the singularity. And because of the, the lack of the ability to predict, he doesn't think it's, it's likely that that could be the case, that there would be a singularity. Basically, the idea is uh, if there's a singularity, then we couldn't predict. We can predict, so there's no singularity. So the breakdown of physical laws in his mind is impossible. And then number two, uh, the singularity would lead to an initial configuration of the universe that we cannot hope to understand, but the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. So uh, if there was a singularity, we could, uh, we could not understand everything. But because we can understand everything, there can't be a singularity. So I would say that basically that argument is, um, is simply saying, what he's saying is that the singularity is a threat to my absolute belief in what I would call scientism. And uh, scientism, I think if you boil down the argument, it's just simply that. He's just saying, I don't, I don't like this because it threatens my scientism and I believe in scientism. And here's how scientism is defined. Uh, it's the belief that the methods of natural science form the only proper elements in any, any philosophical or other inquiry. Um, now think about that in relation to naturalism. It's not necessarily the same thing. You could be a naturalist and believe that, that the universe is all there is, and yet not go so far as to think that uh, that the methods of natural science are the only proper elements in any philosophical or other inquiry. Uh, so this is even a step beyond the naturalism. It's kind of an extreme form of naturalism. But he was very much committed to it. I mean, that quote just below that shows that. The eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe, a complete understanding of the events around us and of our existence. Basically saying that's got to be there. I am 100% sure that there is that complete understanding. The theory of everything, 
And because the singularity threatens the theory of everything, it cannot be true. And here's an interview. I don't know when this interview happened. It was published in the Washington Post in March of 2018. Maybe it was just a few days before he died. But he said, uh, before we understand science, it is natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation. Again, even to his death, he just kept thinking about um, God and how uh, what he believed uh, ruled out the idea of God. Now, um, you might have heard of Jane Hawking. If you saw the movie, I did not see the movie that was about him. What was that movie called? Theory of Everything. Theory of Everything. So I didn't see that movie, but I, and I don't know if, if Jane appeared in it. I don't think she did. I think that the person who was in it was his second wife. Does anybody know? You said you saw it? Yeah, I think they're both in it. Oh, they're both in it? Okay. So Jane was, um, was his nurse right when he got uh, his diagnosis. And she was a Christian. And they, they got married. And much later, um, in an interview with The Guardian, uh, this is what Jane said. And this is after they had gotten divorced. And she was kind of looking back on their marriage. But she said, there doesn't seem to be any room in Stephen's mind for other sources of inspiration. You can't actually get an answer out of Stephen regarding philosophy beyond the realms of science. And um, according to Jane, he started out as a deist. And, and deist, deism means that there is a God, um, but God simply winds up the watch and lets it run and does not get involved ever again. So it's like the divine watchmaker is sometimes the way a deist is described. So there is a God out there who created the natural laws and lets them run, but that God is not uh, he, not personal, doesn't know anything about us, simply a being that is the laws of science, so to speak. But then as his disease progressed, she said, he wouldn't talk about God at all anymore. So he moved more and more towards atheism. And this is kind of interesting. I don't know exactly what to make of this, but according to Jane, uh, I believe this is while she was married to him, but as his fame increased, especially with this book, uh, he thought of himself as, these are quotes from her, an all-powerful emperor, a masterly puppeteer. He felt he was omnipotent, you might say. And she said her role every day was just telling him that he's not God. So something happened to him as a result of his fame, I think, and perhaps as a result of his... um, desire for there to be a cure to his disease, that he just began to think that there's got to be something in science that could, um, that can save me and my disease, and therefore also that could explain everything. So he just kind of put his faith entirely in science. So I have uh, two critiques. Uh, these are the kind of, this is kind of where the theology theological reading comes in. Uh, two critiques. One being that, uh, that scientism is really no basis for a scientific argument. It's, it's a worldview. Uh, it's, it's, it's a valid worldview. But it's also, it, it can't be used as a proof for a scientific theory. And, and it should not be the basis uh, for his discounting of a singularity at the beginning of space-time. And I would say that his no-boundary principle is a faith commitment as much as is the idea of God, which, of course, he would have hated that idea. 
He would have said it has nothing to do with faith. It, would have, it was only based on the fact that he believed in science. And he would say, I believe in, in God. And that's kind of, again, that's kind of irrational or at least non-rational. Uh, whereas he believes in what is facts. I believe in value, something as value versus a fact. And then, like I said earlier, I think maybe uh, that this was all influenced by his hope that science could solve all of his problems, all problems, including his problems, of his worsening ALS. So that's my first critique. And uh, I'm, I'm near the end, so if you have uh, other ideas, I'd love to hear any other critiques or piggybacking on this critique. So um, this is probably a more important critique and a lot of my paper was based on this. I think a brief history of time is, is based on a faulty understanding of the laws of nature. And I'm sure you all use that, that term sometimes in medical school. Although in medicine, you probably realize more than, than physicists do that there, there really aren't any laws of nature in a strict sense as uh, ironclad, unbreakable rules, commandments from on high, that's definitely the way that Hawking thinks of them. As truly like, uh, these are the laws that are fixed forever. And uh, like, again, they're, they're unbreakable, they're ironclad, they're kind of commandments, almost like the Ten Commandments. Um, and I would say that's, a, that's not, a, most philosophers of science these days don't think of the laws of nature that way. And here's one, William Stegner, who wrote a, a book uh, called Quantum Cosmology and the Laws of Nature. This, has, this had nothing to do with, with faith or God or anything, his paper. It's simply a way of talking about what the laws of nature are like. And he makes these five observations that lead him to the conclusion that they are merely humanly observed regularities and nothing more. So I hope that makes sense, the difference in, I don't know what you would call Hawking's view. There's, there's probably a word for that view of the laws of nature, but in his mind, they're a lot more certain and they're a lot more um, binding than that I think they really should be described to be. Because uh, Stegner would say they're, they're merely humanly observed regularities. We don't know what they are. All we, all we can know is that nature keeps operating that way. That's about all we can say, because we're so limited and finite. And here are the five reasons. Uh, and his, this, uh, this, he goes into much greater detail about all these. But number one, uh, they're all observed with very limited instruments that we create. Number two, they're always idealized. So you take experimental data and you make this idealized thing from that data. But if you've done, I've done a few summers of research with a professor over at Wake Forest, uh, Dr. Rick Matthews, and uh, the data never quite fit the theory. It just doesn't. Um, there's always data points that you can't explain. And I know that you can do repeated experiments and, and every time there's gonna be stuff that doesn't quite fit. So, Every scientific theory is idealized from experimental data. Uh, number three, uh, the theory is always underdetermined by the data that they explained. So every theory of science is underdetermined by the data that uh, they're trying to explain. In other words, uh, several contradictory theories could often account for the same data. That's, uh, that's what it means by underdetermined. So you're kind of picking one of those theories to account for that data. Uh, number four, cultural presuppositions, human creativity, and reigning paradigms play a crucial role in the creation of theories. 
Um, trying to remember that book. It was really important about the revolutions and paradigms. Anybody remember that name of that book? Um, Thomas Kuhn? Structures and Scientific Revolution. It's this groundbreaking book where he showed that uh, in some ways these, these new theories of science were just, um, they're more intuitive. They're like the, these intuitive leaps that we had. Um, and it really made scientists very mad. Because, it, it, again, if, if, you're, if your view of the laws of nature is that first thing that Hawking has, this idea um, that these scientific revolutions happen just by intuitive insights, these leaps of intuition, is not the way that, that they would like to see things. I mean, one way of, of yeah, number five, uh, this is probably the most powerful argument, is that um, all of these laws of nature that we find out are constantly being subsumed by uh, or replaced by, which is even more uh, damning to the laws, brand new laws. Like, uh, you know, Newton has his equations on gravity, and then Einstein comes along and completely changes what gravity is. Now, you could subsume Newton's laws under them, they still operate, but Einstein's is a, is a better explanation. But again, still, uh, who knows? Maybe that, that's possibly going to be replaced by a new one. So the point of this Stegner thing is that um, the laws of nature are not what Hawking thinks they are. They're not, they're, not all they cracked, they're not all they're cracked up to be, in other words. Okay, so this is, my, um, this is kind of what I would propose. As, a, as someone who has faith in a creator... Um, that uh, I think it's reasonable to think that the singularity implies a balloon that's open at the bottom. And so there would be a creator uh, that the breath would come into the balloon to get that thing started. But then also that um, there would be a sustainer that would continue to breathe the air into it. And I think that's the part that is less often talked about or thought about. And I've got three verses here um, that uh, I think whether you're a uh, Christian Jew or Muslim, and, and maybe other faiths as well, you, would, you could agree to these things. But this is more um, from point two about the sustainer. I think all three of these are elaborations of that idea that there is not only a creator, but also a sustainer of the universe. In God, we live and move and have our being. God upholds everything by the word of his power. Um, which would be like everything continues to be the way it is simply because God is speaking and, is, and the, 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 the speech, which is obviously a metaphor, but um, this, this, this language or information, all this information is coming out constantly from power of God that is keeping things the way they are now. And then another quote would be, uh, in God, all things are holding together. So I think that the... Uh, both the Old uh, and New Testaments would uh, have this idea that the God didn't just create, um, but actually is constantly involved in everything. Uh, God is both um, transcendent above all creation, but also I think what is often missed uh, by a lot of believers is that God is imminent within what's going on in creation. And I'm going to close with these two quotes um, Paul Davies is an Australian physicist and more and more over the years a philosopher of science and I don't know what he believes exactly 
Uh, I've, I've seen just through his writings that he seems to be moving closer and closer to theism of some kind, but a fascinating writer, a really, really great writer. One of the better uh, writers of science uh, in the world, I would say. It's just he's easy to read. He makes things very understandable. So this is what he says. Uh, the idea of God, who is just another force or agency at work in nature, uh, moving atoms here and there in competition with physical forces is profoundly uninspiring. And uh, that can sometimes be described as the God of the gaps. I can talk about that if you want in just a bit. But he's saying the God of the gaps is profoundly uninspiring. That God is kind of um, another thing in addition to the laws of nature. You've got the laws of nature and you've got God. And God does things and then nature does things. And what Davies says is, to me, the true miracles of nature are to be found in the ingenious and unswerving lawfulness of the cosmos, a lawfulness that permits complex order to emerge from chaos and life to emerge from inanimate matter and consciousness to emerge from life. I love those three things. Uh, Let's see, from um, chaos to order, from order to life and from life to consciousness all three are amazing I don't think Davies would call them miracles because that kind of implies that God is suddenly breaking in but miraculous in terms of astounding and amazing and unlikely Um, so um, without the need for occasional supernatural prodding a lawfulness that produces beings who not only ask great questions of existence, but who, through science and other methods of inquiry, are even beginning to find answers. I love that. Um, and then Arthur Peacock is uh, a British kind of theologian scientist. God is creating now and continuously in and through the inherent inbuilt creativity of the natural order, both physical and biological creativity that in itself Uh, that itself is itself God. So both the physical and biological creativity is God in the process of creating. Now that doesn't mean that's all God is, but that is God. This uh, order, this lawfulness, unswerving, ingenious lawfulness, that's kind of going back to this idea of God as the sustainer. In God we live and move have our being. He upholds everything by the word of his power. In him all things hold together. I think that's a, uh, those are good ways to describe what Peacock and Paul Davies are saying. So um, the God of the gaps, last thing I would say here, is that a lot of people of faith, kind of without knowing it, they believe in this God of the gaps. And so what they would say is whenever science can't explain something, then we throw God in there. But now if they can explain that, then God has become less involved. Um, so the classic one is kind of uh, how do we get life out of non-living things? We don't know. There's a big gap there. So we'll say, oh, well, God had to do it. But then what if they do explain? What if the scientific theory does come around that explains the beginning of life from non-living things? Well, then God would have just lost some ground or less involved. Um, the same thing with evolution. Like, how did, uh, how did something living become conscious? Uh, how did humans come about out of things that don't have consciousness? And again, uh, people of faith have said, well, that's where God comes in. You can't have that happen unless there's God. 
But then once you discover it, then God, again, is, is left out some more. So the God of the gaps, where you put God only in the gaps of lack of understanding, is a, is a bad theory. Because if it's true, then God's presence is less and less uh, a part of nature, the more and more science finds out, if you're only putting God in the gaps. And sometimes people will um, critique intelligent design as a God of the gaps theory. I don't know about that. Um, you may not know what intelligent design is, but if you know what intelligent design is, um, that is potentially one of these God of the gaps theories, although I don't know enough about it to say for sure. I have a friend who really strongly believes in intelligent design, and he would say it is not a God of the gaps theory. He's talked to me about